Lit Chat listeners. <laughs> Thanks, Bonnie. <laughs> this is PJ. And this is Bonnie. And today we are bringing you another session of Lit Chat. We will be discussing Reader's Choice because that's what this month was. So I actually read, well, okay, I read one book and I'm in the process of reading another book, but I'm almost towards the end, so I'm going to go ahead and talk about it. The first book that I read that I actually finished was called The Witch's Heart by Genevieve Gordachek. I do hope I said her last name correctly. It is a romance novel historical fantasy. So it's based on Norse mythology, and specifically it's the romance between Agraboda, who is a witch, and the trickster Loki. And I have to admit, there's all types of reason why I, I kind of picked up this book. Partly because, if you guys don't know, I have a cute little dog named Loki, who <laughs> is actually named after this god because he is very mischievous. Also, this came about right as I was finishing binge-watching The Vikings, which is the History Channel's um, series. So I had just finished binge-watching that. So Vikings were on my mind. So it just made sense. Um, But yes, as I mentioned, this book is about the relationship between Loki and one of his wives, cousin mythology. I think he has two. This one's specific to um, Agraboda, even though it does mention his uh, second wife. And um, I liked it. I liked it. Um, So basically, without ruining too much of it, it brings in mythological story of Ragnarok, which is how the world ends. Okay. How the gods um, are defeated. Does the witch come into it in any it does. witchy stuff? The little that I know about mythology, but once again, I, I did, as I read this, I was trying to find more on this. Agraboda is not mentioned much. She is mentioned in passing. She is mentioned as the mother of monsters, and the wife to Loki. And so she doesn't get a lot of play. <laughs> no, and this is partly why I like it, because I love, with a lot of these mythologies, a lot of the, unfortunately, most of the female characters, um, especially the ones that you know aren't the main goddesses, are just briefly mentioned. So you don't really hear much about them. There's no real backstory to them. And as a curious person, I always get curious as to, okay, well, so what's the backstory? Tell me more about this person. I want to know more about her. Was she a good witch? Was she a bad witch? Like, what was going on there, right? And so this book actually gives you more meat to the character, and I appreciate that. Even though it is fictional fantasy. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Because what we mostly know about her is that she is a witch. Like I said, she is one of the wives of Loki, and she is a mother of monsters um she is called the mother of monsters because of the three children that she has with loki and these three children play a very big role in ragnarok which is the end of the world so she's a big character because she's the mother of these These. yes so for her not to you know just be a little brief mention yeah i like that there's meat to this character i also just really liked the relationship between her and loki it's like 
almost like dysfunctional in a wonderful way. I don't know. Like, well, with Loki, anything would have to be dysfunctional. Yes. But yeah. Even when there's betrayal, they still really love each other. It's just like, it's not your um, Typical love. Typical romance. Yes. It's not your lovey-dovey romance. They know what they have in each other. They are sarcastic. They're funny and humorous. And, and that's what I appreciate because I'm not one of those people that really likes lovey-dovey romances. Okay. Um, but I like their relationship. They playfully give each other a hard time. They also call each other out on things. like. But also, with that said, you get a different idea of... Like, when you think about it, you're like, oh, no, they must have all been horrible. You know, even her children must have been horrible because they bring about the end of the Age of Gods, right? Well, this story paints it in a way where you understand why that happens. And there's no true villains. Okay. It makes them more human, you know? It gives a backstory to her children. So one of her children, which I'm not going to try to pronounce his name because it, I would butcher it. It's a humongous snake. Okay. Remember, Loki is a shapeshifter. So, I mean, this is why, you know, she doesn't necessarily have human kids. She has children with him that are take other shapes because he's a shapeshifter. So it's a gigantic snake that is so huge it could wrap itself around the earth. It gets cast into the ocean. It gets cast into the sea by the um, gods. Um, so it's not treated well. The other one is a gigantic wolf. So gigantic that he ends up eating the sun. And this is partly why Ragnarok occurs. And his name is Fenrir. Which, let me tell you, I love that name. If I ever get a German Shepherd, Fenrir is going to be his name. I just think it's an awesome, awesome name. <laughs> um, it's a humongous wolf. And then their other child is named Hell. <laughs> and well, so, that kind of explained itself, I guess. Yes, and <laughs> without any assurance, because I haven't done research, I have a good inkling that we get the word Hell from <laughs> this character. She is actually human. However, her legs are blue because her legs are essentially dead. Oh. And she is like your Hades. She rules the underworld, which kind of makes sense. But it explains why her legs are dead. It actually gives explanation that you're like, oh, okay. She's an interesting character because she's part alive, but part, but also part dead. To the point where like her mother being a witch gives her all these um, selves to help it not progress any further. But there is a part where they are all separated from their mother. And so there's one point where like her skin has just fallen off. And basically like half of her is just like the bones. Oh, geez. So when she walks, it's just like a click clack of like bones on the floor. Oh, geez. Yeah. <laughs> it's mythology for you. You feel for these characters. Okay. You understand why they 
bring about the end. And I don't want to say it's the end of the world because in this book, it's it's really not the end of the world. It's more the end of the reign of the gods. Okay. The actions that happen are a result of the gods getting in the way of their family. Because how you meet this witch is she can see the future. And Odin, the main god, keeps pushing her to see the future because he wants to know how the world's going to end. And she doesn't want to see that. I mean, who would, right? I would love to. I like being blissfully ignorant of the fact that I don't know when the world's going to end. I don't either. So she doesn't want to see that. And he keeps pushing her and pushing her. And when she goes against him, he just basically um, ends up burning her alive. And because she's a witch, she, she doesn't die. You find out that she goes into hiding from the gods. And the way she actually meets Loki is that Loki is returned her heart. Even though she gets burned, she's able to heal herself. However, the gods end up taking her heart away from her. They keep it in a safe spot. So Loki finds it and returns it to her. And that's the title, The Witch's Heart. Yes. So that's how they meet. And it just puts more meat to a character that doesn't get mentioned a lot. And also, it gives you a different perspective of why, um, like, maybe they aren't the villains. Yeah. Even though they, you know, bring up the end of the reign of the gods. They kind of ended themselves, the gods did, if you want to look at it that way. And yes, that is very much true, because they kept getting into... Arguments. Arguments, but also they get kept getting into the lives of Agraboda and her children. If they had just left her alone and not antagonized her, none of, so like they did it to themselves, basically. Right. Okay. So yes, I really like this book. If you are a fan of Cersei, which I have read also, if you're a fan of just these books where they take these minor mythological characters and build a story around them and give them a background and meet, you will like this book. The other book that I am currently reading and I'm almost done um, is Lies My Teacher Told Me by James W. Lowen, adapted by Rebecca Steffoff, and this is the Young Reader's Edition. On the cover it says, Everything American History Textbooks Get Wrong. Well, that's just about everything nowadays, isn't it? Yes. Well, not even nowadays, just from the beginning. I mean... And, you know, some of the stuff is common sense, you know? It's like the idea that history is written by the victors. And of course it is. Yes. So the victors are going to always make themselves look better in the eyes of people. When you we talk about the conquistadores or we talk about settlers... We always view them as these pious Christians who were just trying to get religious freedom. But what our textbooks don't tell us is that while that was a reason, the overall bigger picture was to just get money and make profit. Yeah. And that included doing horrendous things to Native Americans. But we don't learn about that horrendous stuff, you know? No, it's... And if we do, it's very briefly. It's almost like a, 
Well, so the settlers ended up attacking an Indian village, but only because that Indian village first attacked them. But it never tells you why the Indian village attacked them. It never says because that Indian village, like, you know, felt disrespected or their lands were being encroached on or they, the settlers were stealing their stuff. And two, a lot of history is written or taught depending on where you live. Yes. I mean, if you live in the north, like I, I was raised in Michigan, you don't learn the same American history, quote unquote, that you do when you live in Virginia. Yes. Or that you live in Texas. And we were talking about this in our lit chat, our live lit chat, because the majority of you guys are not Texan. So you guys were like, what is this mystique of the Alamo? Yeah. You were saying like you didn't know the Alamo, which makes sense. I don't feel like that would be taught up in the North because it's a very Texas thing. I mean, it it was probably one of those things that was just taught when you were discussing states becoming states. Yeah. You know, and the fact that, and and they always mistakenly told you that the Alamo, the fight at the Alamo was where Texas got its independence. And it wasn't until I moved down here across the river from the San Jacinto Monument that I found out totally (laughs) different. So it's told by the victors. It's also just... A lot of our textbooks are so biased, so biased. Um, because a lot of our textbooks, whether they want to admit it or not, are political. Yes. And so just some of the biases that are kind of obvious is the way, just calling them settlers. As if the Native Americans weren't settlers themselves. They were there already. They had already settled those lands. So why are they called anything, like, why is there a distinguish of the Europeans be called, being called settlers? when And the Indians being called barbarians. Exactly. And it's that also idea, the idea that, you know, the European society was civilized, but not indigenous cultures. Many of these tribes... Were Many extremely of these, civilized. They had their own religion. They had their own art. They had their own culture. They had like, their own way of governing themselves. I mean, they and had let ways me of, tell you, of dealing with people who did bad things amongst their group. And let me tell you, you know, the Iroquois um, Confederation, if I'm not mistaken, if that's what it's called, um were very democratic before the United States was democratic. In fact, our finding, like our founding fathers pointed to some of the stuff that the uh, Native Americans did, how they governed. But we don't get, men- that doesn't get mentioned. No. That doesn't get mentioned. And even, even the images that we use are so biased. It's these... Europeans that are fully clothed and, you know, proper. And then just like Indians that are like nearly naked. It leaves an image for you. Um, And that's not true because let me tell you, if you were an Indian in Michigan, you did not run around without clothes on. And that's what they were saying. (laughs) Like, you know. the, The climate would indicate the fact 
that Indians did not run around without clothes on. It would just, I mean, in New England, they couldn't have possibly. I mean, yeah, maybe one or two months out of the year. But, you know, it's. I laugh because this one's a. this. So if you know me, um, you know that I dislike Thanksgiving. I dislike that holiday. Early on, I knew that that was a big lie. Uh, Native Americans did not get along with pilgrims. Pilgrims did not get along with Native Americans. Also, I just very much disliked it because um, my birthday sometimes falls on Thanksgiving. And so thanks, Thanksgiving, for stealing my thunder. (laughs) That's just a personal thing. But um, And this book talked about Thanksgiving, which was hilarious to me because if anybody knows me, I don't like Thanksgiving. Um, But also it just made me... It made me think of second grade when I had my my grade level was doing a PTO performance and it was Thanksgiving. And having grown up in the valley, um, I really, really like we were doing the Thanksgiving theme thing. So of course, some of the kids were gonna be Native Americans and others were gonna be pilgrims and I wanted to be a Native American so bad because I've always respected um, Native Americans, their respect for nature and, you know, the understanding of the balance of like the earth gives, but you also have to balance how much you take from the earth. Like I just always, even as a small child, just really almost had, always had utmost respect for Native American culture. So, yeah, we get down to it, and of course, they put me as a pilgrim. And I was not happy, Bonnie, because I was one of the lighter-skinned kids, so I guess I could pass off as a pilgrim. But yeah, that made me laugh, because even like with, um, you know, what they don't tell you about Squanto is, Squanto is just a, a lovely story. This native american who comes and he helps the like pilgrims and you know with squanto i did not know that squanto's story is a very sad story nobody knows a hundred percent about the actuality of squanto's story um so there's stories that he was taken at a very young age you know when he was a child away from his community and sent to England. Historians have agreed that once in England, somehow he was sold into slavery into a Spanish owner. He managed to eventually um, flee slavery and ask someone that was coming back to the United States if he, which at the time wasn't even the United States, but if he could catch a ride. And so when he, by the time he comes back to his homeland, he has discovered that his tribe has been wiped by diseases that were first brought by the Europeans, and that his city has been taken by white settlers. And so this lovely idea of, you know, Squanto, like, helping, maybe he was helping, and maybe he was just survival, because he's the last of his tribe. Yeah. And because at this point he knows he's got to, you know, he's got two roads. Be, um, show animosity against the, like, white settlers. 
which isn't going to get you anywhere because you're like the only one of your like, or help them and hope that you can form some like working relationship to where they're not going to like, you know, kill you. Exactly. And so it's stuff like that. But, you know, also this Arthur talks about like, you know, history a lot of the times also it's like we don't talk about history because we don't want to hurt certain people's feelings when you're in a relationship any type of relationship friendship marriage sibling and there's a problem the only way to fix the problem is through communication talking about it right if you ignore it it can create animosity. It could create horrible feelings. Like, it is never good to ignore a problem. And essentially, history doesn't get taught the way it should be taught because we want to ignore the problems and not talk about it to avoid people's feel like hurting, like having hurt feelings. Basically, what you're saying is, I want to avoid talking about a subject matter that's going to hurt this group of people's feelings, but I'm okay with the fact that this other group of people's feelings are being hurt by not talking about the issues. Yeah, it's it's a big, vicious circle. So yeah, you are... Cr- it just needs to be talked about, period. Yes, yes. In a very, you know, factual manner. This is what happened, period. You know, it, it don't... Don't put a spin on it. Just, this is what happened. Now, unfortunately, it gets the spin because it depends on who wrote it. Yes. And so just a, just a couple of things also with the bias. John Brown. In history, John Brown is known for his, if I'm not mistaken, Harper Ferry raid, where he basically him and a couple of his sons and a couple of people who are abolitionists decide that they're going to take over an armory and um, they're going to try to get an uprising from the slaves. And when you see pictures of John Brown, he always has a big beard and he looks like a crazy man. When you... When textbooks have talked about John Brown, they always question his sanity and whether he was a crazy man. His story gets diluted because all of a sudden, it's not about a man who is a Christian and truly believes that no human being deserves the atrocities of slavery. And it bothers him so much that he feels like he needs to do something about it. He does what he does. And yes, it's somewhat, it's, it's violent. But it's just funny how when we talk about it, we are so willing to point to the violence of his action and then bury the violence that was going on with slavery. Yep. And he talks about how if he has to give up his life to end slavery, he's okay with that. And all of a sudden, it's become a thing of like, oh, well, he was crazy. He was a violent man. And you forget his motives. You forget that he meant well. Yeah. And I have one of the passages that really floored me, and I just kind of want to read this. Um, so the author 
He's talking about the Confederate myth of Reconstruction. And he was a professor in 1969 at a mostly black school. And I'm just going to read a little part of this. It says, I was about to start teaching a unit on Reconstruction. On the first day of class, I asked my 17 first-year students what they already knew. Mind you now, his students are black. 16 of them said Reconstruction was the time when African Americans took over the southern states, including Mississippi, but slavery had just ended and blacks didn't know how to govern. They messed up and reigned corruptly. Whites had to take back control. These are black kids who have been taught that blacks can't govern correctly and that blacks at one point had control during the Reconstruction. Which they never did. They never did. And that floored me. Floored me. I was like, whoa. Because obviously it was something they were taught somewhere. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, like I said, I am still reading this book, but I am really liking it. There's some hard truths to it, honestly. Nothing gets solved by ignoring the problem. And if anything, knowledge is power, as cheesy as that sounds. So I would greatly suggest it. I really like this book. And I would suggest that if you want to know more about how history is incorrectly taught and just how much bias there is in how we teach history. And you're open to the idea of, you know, learning some hard truths and pick up this book. It's worth it. He has two editions. He has the adult edition and he has a young adult edition. I'm reading the young adult edition. Your turn. What did um, you read, Bonnie? Needless to say, I caught up on a lot of reading over the past few months. My, my series, I got caught up on everything. But I did read a couple of books that were on the list that we pick our lit chat books from. So I picked up David Mitchell's Utopia Avenue. It was eye-opening in that it gave you a very inside look of 1967, 68, the rock and roll scene. It literally was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Well, and that's such a heavy time period because if I'm not mistaken, like you have... Jazz Joplin. You had the Beatles. You had David Bowie. You had Jimi Hendrix. But you had... You had the Who. You had... But um, I'm alluding more to the fact that you have Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, and Jim Morrison all dying from drugs, all within a very... And then and those, bring up some of those in this book. Some of those people, like this band that is formed, actually ends up, quote unquote, meeting these people. But it gives you a very behind-the-scenes look of how bands became bands back then. And, you know, what does go on behind the scene and how the record deals were made. And, you know, how good and or bad the promoters of these bands were and their managers, how unhonest some of them were. And the fact that that their manager was extremely honest with them and with the management of the band that other people commented on the fact that he was so honest. Oh, that's sad. <laughs> um, and the backers, like what they had to do to get backers to promote these bands in order to have the money for these bands. At one point, 
the ban Utopia Avenue is being backed by some German company. Oh. And after listening to the music, this is what they wanted. But the band themselves had gotten together and decided, these are the songs we want to promote. We don't care. And they were literally willing to give up the money to promote themselves. Fortunately, at the time, their backers said, okay, we'll give it a shot. Unfortunately, it failed. (laughs) But... Their idea failed very, very dramatically. But fortunately, they had enough of a base at that point that they could continue. The book was written in such a way that the chapters were basically the titles of their songs. Oh, that's cool. I like that. They, they would like do albums such and such, side one, and list the songs. And that was the titles of those chapters. And then they did albums such and such, side two, and listed. Oh, and each nice. song was basically something that happened in their lives. The three of the people in the band were actually writers. The drummer was the only one that did not write any songs of his own. However, there was one of the lone female in the band actually wrote a song that incorporated him. So So, it was extremely interesting. Can I just say that that reminds me of the Beatles? Because at the time you had uh, George, John, John, that did all the writing and Ringo didn't. But he would get incorporated because he would sing songs. Right. When this band was formed by Levon Franklin, who was the manager, uh-huh. he basically literally was listening to these underground bands, groups that were performing in the dives in England. And when he heard a couple of these kids performing, because they were kids, they weren't even 20 at the time that he discovered them. And he heard this one guy and he goes... Okay, I'm going to take this one guy and I'm going to introduce him to these other two guys, but we got to get rid of the other two guys in these other band so that he can join them. During their intermission, he went in the back room and told these two guys that one of them was messing around with the other one's wife. And they ran out the door, chasing each other to beat each other up. And so the, man, the club manager is like, well, I already paid them their money. You know, what am I yeah. going to do? And, and this Levon is saying, well, here, throw this guy, Dean, up there with his bass guitar, with these with the drummer and the other guitarist, and they I were mean, born. It's yeah. not unlike what I've, what I've heard, because I love rock and roll and I love the 60s. So it, it, it does seem like it's, it could have been a real band. It sounds it like it could it have been a real have, band. It, the way it, they, that he wrote this book, it could very well have been. The name Utopia Avenue was the name of the band. The characters were extremely well done in this book. Oh, he nice. very he he really built the characters. Jasper was the lead guitarist, and he was very sci-fi-ish, and he was very. I, I think he was schizophrenic. He definitely had some kind of psychological issue. It, the way that they deal with it in the book is just amazing. And near the end, he overcomes it. But just some of the things that happen in the book, you're like, this sounds so sci-fi. <laughs> he was having a dream. And he was walking down the street. And he saw the street sign, Utopia Avenue. 
Then later on, when the band was discussing names, they were trying to pick names like the Beatles did and like the Who and Mm -hmm. all of those groups. And they're like, but we're not them. And so somebody finally said, well, Jasper, you're not saying anything. You got any ideas? And he just spit out, what about Utopia Avenue? And they all just kind of looked at him and they all, oh, let's forget about it today. And then when their manager came back the next day and asked him, they all said, the other three, not Jasper, but the other three said, Utopia Avenue sounds good to us. (laughs) And that's how the name came about. So I have to say, as you're telling me this, did you enjoy it? Because I feel like I would enjoy it because you mentioned, is it Jasper who has uh, schizophrenia? Yeah. And so you mentioned that and right immediately, I think of Pink Floyd. And I think of their first singer, Sid Barrett, who did a lot of drugs, did a lot of LSD. I feel like as some, if you know your rock history, but I feel like are they based on real people? Because you talk about Jasper being schizophrenic. Pink Floyd's first singer, Sid Barrett, just did so many drugs that eventually, like, he had to be put in a asylum because he just well, what didn't is function. what is interesting is that Jasper was one of the people in the band that did not do drugs. They all did pot. Yeah, I'll admit that. But Dean, the bass guitarist, was the one that was really into the drugs and the sex scene. He would do anything, anywhere. Just his way of of building the characters and what they went through with the band. The fact mm-hmm. that when they were just starting out, their first gig was at this place that Levon had set up, and Elf was the keyboardist. And of course, you can't pack a piano and take it with you. Mm-hmm. But she did have a keyboard that they decided. Levon said, "No, no. The guy promised me you'd have a piano. You'd have a piano." And so they didn't take the keyboard because they were in this dilapidated old van. They were traveling like four or five hours to get to this gig. Yeah. And they get there and they don't have a piano. So what does Elf do? That's her job is she plays keyboard and she doesn't have a keyboard. And several of their songs depended on her keyboarding. Mm -hmm. So obviously that gig was a total flop. So the next time they go to a gig, obviously there's people from the first one there and they're like bringing up these issues. Well, hey, you know, are you going to be any better than you were like? And of course, that one just blew everybody away. You liked it? Eventually. This is the book that I put in the list. So I was really interested in your thoughts about it. And at the beginning, you're like, "Uh, I'm just having a hard time. It does have an extremely sad ending. I'm not going to give it away. No, because I'm going to read it. Don't read this if you are not in a in a good, happy mood. Yeah. Well, real quickly, I also read another book on the uh, list. I read John Steinbeck's Travels with Charlie. Now, Charlie is a standard poodle, and if we all know (laughs) anything about standard poodles, they're the big ones, the huge ones. You know that they call him a blue standard poodle. He's French. And that's kind of where his name comes from. He originally, when John Steinbeck got him, he only understood commands in French. (laughs) Oh! Did Steinbeck know French or did he have to learn French? He basically taught the dog with sign language. And eventually the dog did learn some English. 
terms. But if he ever really, really wanted him to pay attention, he had to say the French for it. Well, to be fair, first of all, dogs are amazing, and that just goes to show it. But also, poodles are supposed to be, if not the smartest breed, right? one of the smartest breeds. Okay, and this book took place during September through December of 1962. John Steinbeck gets a truck with a camper specially built for him. Okay. Like one of the campers that are on the back of a truck. And he dubs it Rosinante, which if anybody knows anything, which I didn't. Isn't it Don Quixote? Don Quixote's horse. That was the name of Don Quixote's horse was Rosinante. (laughs) And he literally talks about his camper just like you would your horse. He spends almost a month in upper New York and Maine before he actually starts across the country. And remember now, he's doing this in November and December, October, November, and December, and he's traveling across the northern part of the country. So I'm like, first of all, why? And well, that's second, what I was going to tell you. Does he tell you why? No, he just, oh, okay. that was just the route that he picked. I have no idea why he decided to do it in the winter time. He does not even mention why he decided to do it in the winter I time. Could. And then when he comes back, he comes back across the southern states because he talks specifically his wife is a Texan. He specifically talks about some time that they spent in Texas because Charlie got very, very sick and wow. had to be treated at a veterinarian for a month or so, so or several weeks. Is and his wife not traveling with him? No, his wife is not traveling with him. <laughs> it's just him and Charlie. That's why it's Travels with Charlie. Well, I wondered about that. I was like, but what if she's traveling with him and he just doesn't mention it? When I saw the title of the book, I thought, oh, he's going to talk about these places that he went to, and he's going to talk about the people that he met, and he's going to talk about his experience with traveling, and it was very little of that. So what was It was the more about? just how he felt about his life at the time, and that certain people that he met and certain places that he went to made him feel differently about things at the time. So it wasn't, it wasn't like giving you travel information, which is what I was expecting. It was just, it was more just feelings. Maybe perhaps his reason why he took the trip, maybe he was at a point in his life where, you know, he was either not in a good part of his life or he, he just. He does talk about certain things that he came in contact with during his travels. He was in New Orleans um, when Ruby Bridges was the only black student in the school. And he was there the day, I don't know how much you know about this. I didn't know hardly anything about it, so I did a little research. But there were a group of mothers who showed up at the school every morning before and every afternoon when it got let out to basically harass this child. Mm Mm-hmm. And the TVs and newspapers would not even print or put sound to what was being said by these mothers because it was so bad. And I'm thinking to myself, good Lord, these were mothers. And that's one of the things he pointed out, that he had a very difficult time with this. He had heard about it and he went to see it 
and then he left. He did not hang around because obviously there were police and there were rioting and there was all kinds of stuff that was going on around this incident. He just himself could not believe that mothers could behave in this manner, no matter what the color of the skin was of the child. And that just totally blew him away. It was things like that that he talked about, but I was very disappointed that it wasn't more travel oriented. Oh. And he did bring this up. My feelings about a place are going to be totally different about your feelings about a place. I think that's one of the reasons he didn't talk so much about the places. He just said how he felt about them or didn't really talk about them at all. Just so much. This is where I went. I almost want to read this book because of the opposite. I don't care about reading about your travel experiences. Like, I don't need you to tell me about the Golden Gate Bridge. I will go to the Golden Gate Bridge. But to me, I want to read this book because it gives me insight to John Steinbeck. I want to know, it's, I guess, maybe the closest thing to me personally knowing him, even though I'll never meet him. And I find that to be very fascinating. Maybe this book is his way of sharing a vulnerable side of him. By talking about his feelings and maybe this is a way of us being able to kind of get to him on a personal level. Well, and Charlie was extremely, extremely important to him in this book. Extremely important. I don't think if he hadn't had Charlie with him, I don't think he would have made the trip after reading the book. Because if it wasn't for Charlie, sometimes he would have just been this lonely guy on the road. (laughs) I completely get that. Loki is part poodle. He's a miniature poodle, and he's a wonderful, wonderful dog who is always very sympathetic, and so when I'm always in pain, he's right there at my side, so I I get it. All right, guys, well, thank you once again for listening to us. Next month is also Reader's Choice. We will be having a lit chat Thursday, May the 12th. I believe it is. Yes. Um, so if you'd like to join us, we would love to know what you guys are reading. And if you can't join us, as always, you can always leave comments and let us know. And we will share your reads. This is PJ. And this is Bonnie. Bye, guys. Bye.